Scripture text this morning comes from the Gospel of John, chapter 12. Listen to the word of the Lord. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. So they gave a dinner for him there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, but Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? He said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief, and having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. Jesus said, Leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you do not always have me. Thus ends the portion of scripture to which we'll turn our attention to this morning. One of my favorite European movies is called La Vita e Bella, Life is Beautiful. It's a story of Guido Orefice, a Jewish-Italian writer whose sense of humor charms the woman who becomes his wife, protects his son from the horrors of the Holocaust during World War II. It's not a Holocaust film like Schindler's List. Rather, it's a mix of comedy, romance, drama, and adventure. I love the film because Guido is portrayed as a crazy man for much of the movie, but it's clear he's actually only one of the few sane people uh, in a world gone mad. When school teachers gather to teach on the virtues of uh, Aryan supremacy, Guido poses as an Aryan, but from showing from his Jewish body, he shows that we're all fearfully and wonderfully made. He's charming, he's zany, he's, his irrepressible joy makes him lovable. In a world gone mad, Guido lives a beautiful life. A man committed to loving his wife passionately. A father willing to lay down his life for his son. A man willing to do anything to keep them alive with irrepressible joy. It's a movie set in the midst of brokenness and suffering, but it refuses to allow uh, suffering to replace joy as the core motivation to live. I love the film because it depicts joy as the deepest reality of the universe, and suffering and death is the intruder. Life is beautiful because there's an artist, and underneath this world, it's, uh, and all its beauty, in all its tragedy, there is a pulsating heart of love and joy. I want us to look at a, a chapter, or just a few verses in Scripture, in which John focuses our attention on two people. One who lives a beautiful life, one a wasted life, one who lives, one who dies, one who's given little but lives for much, the other given much but does little with it, one who takes advantage of the opportunities they're given, and one who wastes opportunity after opportunity, one who's accused of being wasteful but actually lives for something supremely valuable, 
The other steals something valuable and is heralded as some, by some as heroic. So here's the question I want you, I want us to hold in the forefront of our minds as we compare these two lives. Are you spending the capital of your life on that which is most supremely beautiful and valuable, supremely worthy, or are you heading down a path of investing your life in a stock bound to crash? So let's look at the path of the wasted life and then the path of the beautiful life. If you're taking notes, those are our two major points, the path of the beautiful life and the path of the wasted life. Let's first turn our attention to the path of a wasted life. The wasted life is characterized by wasted opportunities and resources. First of all, opportunities. So one of the things that we learned from Judas is that a position, that is that position and privilege do not guarantee you a meaningful life. Twelve men were given the opportunity to spend three intimate years with Jesus. It bore tremendous fruit in the lives of 11 of them. Through 11 of them, a missionary movement began which changed the Roman world in 30 years. Their lives bore fruit as they wrote gospels and epistles. Their ministries bore fruit through their leadership in the planting of churches. And then there was Judas. We don't know much about him, but we do know a lot about what he heard and saw in the three years that he spent with Jesus. He saw Jesus calm the storm in a boat. He saw Jesus feed thousands with a few loaves and fish. He heard Jesus tell a, treasure, a parable about a treasure hidden in a field. When, and when a man realized it was there, he sold everything with joy to obtain it. He was there. He heard Jesus tell a parable about a pearl of such value that a merchant sold everything he had to obtain it. He was given the power to cast out demons and call people to repent. That should humble us. Jesus reminds us that it's possible to have experienced the supernatural, have extraordinary gifts, go to church all your life, teach Sunday school, teach VBS, be given power in ministry and lack saving grace to misunderstand the gospel. One of the questions we should ask ourselves when we examine Judas's life is this. Are we leveraging the resources that we gain from being near Christ in order to build our kingdoms where we're actually king? Or are we surrendering our resources in order that Christ is worshipped as king? It's not hard to, to look at Judas's life and think, wow, his position in his in a position of privilege bore no fruit. What a waste. But look at this. Uh, a wasted, the wasted path, the wasted life is also seen in wasted resources. Look at verse 6. We don't know all the motives of his heart, but we do know that he was a thief. He was obsessed, obsessed with money, lying in his pockets when he had the chance. And perhaps giving him the benefit of the doubt, his motives were often mixed. Perhaps, uh, or imagine the scene with the, uh, the rich young ruler. 
I can imagine Judas saying, wow, look, this think of all the good that we can do if this rich young ruler were to give all his possessions to the poor uh, you know, or to gift it to us. Just think of the church planting movement that we could start with that sort of startup capital. We don't know his motives, but we do know they were mixed. Judas was there when Jesus preached in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for he'll either hate the one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. But that message was ultimately wasted on him. It had little impact on his life, and at some point, money became more important to Judas than Jesus was to him. We don't know when, but we do know that the change was gradual enough that no one seemed to notice it. Let me apply this. A a wasted life rarely sneaks up and ambushes any of us. It comes through the small decisions we make along the way to value something more than Jesus. It's the job you take because you get more pay and better benefits, not because it helps you live evangelistically. It's the bigger home you buy, not because it's in an area that needs to hear about Jesus, but because you want something more quiet and comfortable. It's the relationship you start, not because you think, wow, together we can, we can serve Christ. Rather, you think, wow, I really like the way this, other, this person serves me. So the hardening of his heart began with the breaking of one command, thou shalt not steal. But unconfessed sin hardens our hearts over time. Why? Because sin grows in us like a cancer. And unless you expose it to a radiation which kills it, it will kill you. Scripture calls that sort of radiation grace. We'll come back to that. But when we don't confess sin, our love for that sin will grow in us until it crowds out all other loves. That's why Paul exhorts the church in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5, examine yourself to see whether you're in the faith. What he's getting at is this. One of the enemy's greatest strategies is to get you to live an unexamined life. That is to keep us medicated with hobbies and entertainment so that we never pause long enough to ask deep, penetrating questions. Questions like this. Is Christ's law your standard or just or merely an ideal? For example, I'll give you some examples out of my own life. Scripture says, don't let the sun go down in your anger. I find myself going, well, in an ideal world, that's true. Scripture says, let no unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. I say, well, that, that's definitely you know, worth working towards. Get rid of all bitterness. Yeah, but it's, it's right to get angry sometimes, isn't it? Isn't it? How do you find yourself turning God's standards into ideals. Judas' devotion slowly changed over time. It proved to be wasteful devotion because in the end he got what he wanted and he lost everything important. 
So let's turn our attention to the path of a beautiful life. First, it's shaped by gratitude. Look at verses 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus therefore came to Bethany, where Lazarus was, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. And so they gave a dinner there. Martha served, and Lazarus was one of those reclining with him at the table. Matthew tells of the same dinner party, and he adds this, and the dinner took place at Simon the leper's house. So it's a table set for friends who have experienced Jesus' grace and power. The joy and the laughter must have been contagious. Simon, think of it, had been cut off from friends and family for years because of his disease. And now he sits at a table enjoying food and fellowship. Then you think of Lazarus. Lazarus was cut off from life. He was dead but raised to life and the people weeping for joy, the, uh, for weeping loudest in his grave were weeping loudest with joy when he walked out in his own strength. Those would have been Mary and Martha and Jesus. Sitting at the table are two living and breathing recipients of Jesus' resurrection power, the power to heal all diseases, the power to restore uh, people to community and to triumph over death. And I just imagine Mary seeing the smiles, the joy, the laughter, waiting for the right moment to show just how thankful she is to Jesus. Jesus had wept tears of sorrow with her at Lazarus' grave and wept tears of joy when he walked out. Not only that, Jesus had said something else to her that probably left her speechless. He said in John chapter 11, verse 25, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Mary believed. Not only did Jesus bring her dear friend back from the grave, he's promising the same thing will happen to her one day. And to you. Just better. It's no resuscitation. It's true resurrection. How do people experience you? Negative, critical, focused largely on the brokenness of this world, or is your joy contagious because you live out of immense gratitude and confident hope? Secondly, the path to a beautiful life is prone to extravagant sacrifice. Look at verse 3. Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the, hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Some think that this was a family heirloom. In other words, it was never meant to be opened. Just passed down from generation to generation. It was pure. It was exotic, probably from India. Did you know that there are perfumes today worth over $1,800 per ounce? I looked it up. I don't just know those sorts of things. The perfume Jen Patu Joy takes, think about this, 28 dozen roses, 10,600 jasmine flowers to make one single bottle. 
And in case you're interested in purchasing one, it'll set you back $30,000. We don't have to guess how much this bottle that Mary had cost. Judas tells us in verse 5. Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii? That's just short of a year's wages. How much do you earn in a year? Would you purchase a flask of perfume for that amount? And if so, on what occasion would you open it? For whom would you open it? You see, for Mary, it was the value of the perfume which made what she did profoundly worthwhile. For Judas, it was the value of the perfume which made her actions completely ludicrous. But Mary's actions were an expression of how much Jesus was worth to her. Her actions said what her words struggled to express. What's the most valuable thing you have? Your time, your children, your house, your reputation. Would you be willing to give them up because Jesus is worth it? Meaning you'd rearrange your time so that you could serve the church. You could invest in others and serve the community. You'd be willing to use your house as an open house to welcome guests and tell, in order to tell them about Jesus. You'd be willing to give up the security of your community in order to serve in a corner of the world where people don't have the access to the gospel that you do. Or... You'd send your kids knowing that you're not going to be at every grandkid's birthday party. We should notice this in verse 7 and 8, what Jesus says. He says, leave her alone so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you always have with you, but you don't always have me. What strikes me is this. Mary is the most astute theologian in the room. Jesus had already said in Matthew 26 to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up and crucified. This was the week and Jesus was about ready to die and Mary seems to be listening most carefully. The gravity of his impending death weighs on her and as far as we can tell, the disciples were generally in denial. So Mary broke a flask of significant worth and poured it out in a body that's about ready to be broken for her. She grasped the urgency of the moment and see, or it, it, to express and seized it in order to express her lavish love on Jesus who was still with her. Before the punishing hands of the Roman soldiers were to drag him away, she wanted to take hold of him and anoint him. Here's the point. Costly devotion to Jesus is never wasted. Never. There is nothing that you can give that outgives the grace of Jesus. There is no sacrifice you could make that could surpass his great worth. You can never give too much of ourselves or yourself, your time, your money, your attention, or your affection. For he is worthy. In Revelation 5, there's a scene in which the saints are gathered in glory around their throne. And you remember what they're singing? Worthy. Worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals. That's just code for being able 
to be, for being the one who is able to make all God's promises for all time true. To rid this world of evil, bring those who trust in him into protected paradise. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Whatever it costs you to take hold of Jesus, to trust in his death and resurrection, it's worth it. It will never be a waste. So let me summarize. John is placing Judas and Mary side by side. Judas uses Jesus for personal gain. Mary worships Jesus at personal loss. Judas wants a comfortable life. Mary wants to surrender all that she's been given. So which do you identify with? When you look at your time, your talent, and your treasures, which way do you live? Most of us don't live, if we're honest, in extravagant ways all at once. You see the sacrifice in the faithful, weekly teaching of second graders in, second, in Sunday school, the taking in of foster kids. You see it in the daily, changing, daily sacrifice of changing diapers or the monthly visits to widows and shut-ins. When we love other people whom Christ has made, you love Christ. The cost for some is made in losing a set of friends because you won't do drugs. Or you lose a job because you refuse to cheat on the books. But sometimes I feel that Christianity is peddled like this. Come to Jesus and he'll make all your problems go away. You get healthy. People will like you. You get promoted. Life will become more comfortable, etc. That is not what Jesus promises. If you believe in Jesus to get the life you want, you're not following Jesus. You're just investing. And here's how you know the difference. When you don't get what you want, you get angry with Jesus. It just shows you haven't taken hold of Jesus, but you've created a personalized version of Jesus you want, and you worship that. So what would move us from the path of a beautiful life and, and not to a wasted life? Let me give you a couple of things from the text. First, extravagant mercy. Jesus, extravagant mercy for you. You see, Christianity will make very little sense to you unless Jesus' mercy becomes real to you. I want us to look briefly at two other passages, Matthew 26 and Luke 22, because both parallel the accounts of the story we just read in its conclusion. In Matthew chapter 26 and 27, we read this, Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What's this to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed and he went and he hanged himself. See, Judas' money-loving conscience overwhelmed him and he wanted to come, to come clean. He wanted to cleanse his guilty soul. So he went to the people, he went to the place whose job it was to make 
people clean after they've sinned. He went to the mediators of mercy, the priests of the temple. The problem was the priests of those at that temple were as guilty as Judas. He found no mercy, just condemnation and guilt. But what he sought in corrupt priests, he would only find in Jesus, the true priest, the true temple. And there's at least two places in this story that I find myself shouting at Judas, here's your chance. Here's your chance. Jesus is offering you a chance to come clean, a chance for full pardon, a chance to experience the, the effects of extravagant grace. First of those is in Matthew 26. Jesus says to his disciples, one of you will betray me. And you think in that moment, all of them would look at Judas, right? We all know who that, that one is. The text is extraordinary at this point. Here's what it says. Everyone asked, is it me? They all recognized the power of sin in their lives, and none of them were above treachery. So when Judas turns to Jesus and asks, is it I? Jesus says, you have said so. And I want to scream, now's your chance. Now's your chance, Judas. Come clean, confess. He knows the depth of your sin more than you do. And he's more ready to, to, to forgive than you're ready to confess. Remember, Judas, Jesus has just washed your feet. There are no lengths, Judas, that he will not go to to lay down his life for you in order that you would be forgiven. And remember, Judas, that what he said, that the washing of feet is, is not just a symbolic gesture of what Jesus does for you on the outside, but what he does for you and for all of us on the inside. But Judas didn't repent. Second chance, Luke chapter 22, when Judas comes to betray Jesus, Jesus asks him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? See, Judas, Jesus spent three years walking with him, investing in him, loving him. And before Judas steps forth to betray Jesus, Jesus steps forward first in order to offer himself to him. Astounding. There was no need for Judas to identify Jesus, for Jesus identifies himself as the one willing to lay his life down for him. Some theologians see this as Jesus' last plea. A plea from the psalm that we read just earlier, Psalm chapter 2, kiss the son lest he be angry. In other words, Jesus is saying to Judas, kiss the son in worship, not in betrayal it would have been a kiss which would have saved him from living a wasted life. See, it wasn't Judas' betrayal nor his suicide that was unforgivable. It was his refusal to accept the grace of God in the person, the work of Jesus. Jesus' blood was innocent and his sacrifice costly and of great value. In fact, Peter puts it this way, that his blood has ransomed us with, uh, from perishable things uh, with, with such as silver and gold 
but with, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. In other words, his sacrifice on the cross for guilty sinners like us was not a waste. It was invaluable, peerless. Paul puts it this way. It puts it this way. Jesus' death justifies us. It redeems us. It forgives us. It brings us near to God. It purifies our consciences. It sanctifies us. It cleanses us from all sin. It frees us from sin. And it ransoms people from every tribe, language, people, and nation. Now let me be clear. The point of this chapter is not that you think, well, I want to become more like Mary and less like Judas. She led a beautiful life. Judas just wasted his. The point is that we see the most beautiful life ever lived. In a world gone mad, Jesus steps in to pursue and protect his bride regardless of the cost. He isn't just willing. He actually lays down his life for us so that the tyranny of evil and death doesn't have the last word in our lives. Jesus' life and death on a cross shows us that his joy is the deepest reality of this universe and suffering and death is the intruder. Life is beautiful because he's the true artist. He's shown us that underneath this world in all its beauty and tragedy, there is a pulsating heart of love and joy. The shedding of his blood is the most extravagant demonstration of love ever. Nothing done in response to that love will ever be wasted. Listen to the way Isaac Watts puts this in his hymn. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but lost in poor contempt and all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should post, boast, save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them to his blood. And were the whole realm of nature mine, that were present far too small. Love, so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Let's pray. Jesus, we have gathered because you are worthy. And we thank you for your word, which points us to your life, which points us to the hope that we have like none other this world could possibly offer. And I pray that for skeptics and believers alike, we are so impressed, so overwhelmed by this beauty, this beautiful picture of a beautiful life that it transforms us. That we bow the knee again. We give all that we have to your honor and your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.